I trust you. I wouldn't say that. He trusts me, even though I have a history. Good history. Uh, well, it is really great to be here this morning and to see all the folks that have come out for this service today. Uh, there are a lot of you that I have never met, even though it was only a few years ago that I was here. Uh, quite a tribute to the work that God is doing in your church at the present time, and I'm thankful uh, that the Lord has brought Jesse Barrett here Amen. to serve you, and we can see much fruit as a result of that, and we thank God for it. But um, we had, we did have three good years here, um, but I have to tell you that it was three years in which we did a lot of construction and maintenance. <laughs> I, was, I was actually thinking about that when I started working on this message. And then I realized something personal uh, that is somewhat amazing. I served four different churches, and in each one of the four churches that I served, we ended up doing construction. And then I got to thinking about it that every one of those four churches had or has nearly 200 years of history. It's no wonder we had to do construction. <laughs> so uh, that, that was, a, that was a, a busy, busy time, but I think the Lord gave us some victories in, in that. And... This room that you're in today is part of the result of what we were able to accomplish at that time. Uh, this, this room at one time was used as a, a, a school classroom. I don't know if you knew that or not. And uh, they had two separate areas and a teacher for however many kids they used. But, but unfortunately, we had to end that. All right, so this was the way what I was thinking of, how that this church now has reached that milestone of the 200 years. And I'm, I appreciate the fact that you've given me the opportunity to participate in that celebration. I said we were here three years. It was actually 2004, 2007. And then I also had the privilege of coming back uh, for a while and doing some pulpit supply after uh, the previous pastor uh, left. So, thank God for what we see here today. And uh, we praise the Lord for that. Now, for the past 20, 30 years, this church has, in fact, seen much trouble. Floodwaters have devastated the facilities on several occasions during that time. We've had leaky roofs and foundations, and they've raised havoc. There's also, of course, been low attendance, and finances are always short. I always look back with a little bit of wonder uh, that when my wife and I showed up here in 2007, uh, there were about 23 or 24 people that came to church, and there was only one child 
Um, and he was in ninth grade, I think. We had nobody under ninth grade when we just had, we had that one. We had a couple other ones that were also seniors. And so the Lord was good. Another thing that's happened, of course, is the recent church split that caused major damage. And so, in my estimation, it's nothing short of a miracle from God that this church has survived. God, in his sovereign design for this church, has intervened time and time again to keep these doors open. And so, with you, we give the glory to God and his son, Jesus Christ. Of course, in the process of all this, God has raised up some men and women who have showed endurance, perseverance, sacrifice, and faithfulness. I'm not going to name names because I'll be sure to overlook somebody. We don't want to do that, all right? Besides, God knows who you are, and that's what really matters. What's most important for each one of us here today is to kind of emulate the wisdom of one of our uh, presidents of the past, John F. Kennedy, who said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We just change one word. Ask not what your church can do for you, ask what you can do for your church. Uh, that doesn't mean that your church isn't going to do anything for you. We don't mean that. We, we derive almost unlimited benefits from being members of churches. But God wants us to be members who are also contributors as far as work that has to be done, finances, and all that stuff. Well, the Apostle John wrote a letter to seven churches in the book of Revelation that gives us some guidance along these matters. And I want to look this morning at one of those churches, the first one, the letter to the church at Ephesus, which we just read uh, the responsive reading. Now, on the reverse side of that sheet, I have a little bit of an outline as to where I'm going. Uh, you, there's nothing for you to fill in the blanks. Uh, I, don't, I don't find that terribly profitable myself. But what do we know historically about the church at Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was a major Roman city near the Aegean Sea in the western part of that Asian country that we now call Turkey, uh, on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. In New Testament's times, its population was about 250,000 people, good-sized city. One of its claims to fame was the temple to Artemis, also known as Diana. Artemis is the Greek name for this goddess. Diana is the Roman name for this same goddess. At any rate, they had this huge temple, and it actually is listed even today among one of the seven wonders of the world. So you know it was pretty, pretty uh, impressive. That temple was 425 feet long, 200 feet, 20 feet wide, and 60 feet high. 
and they had 127 marble pillars, some of them overlaid with gold and jewelry. Now the church at Ephesus had its beginning under a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla in 52 AD. They had been traveling with Paul, on, Paul the Apostle on his second missionary journey. And Paul left them in Ephesus to see what they could do while he continued his journey on to Antioch to report on his missionary activities. And then a man named Apollos showed up. Apollos actually had been doing some preaching in Ephesus at the time Aquila and Priscilla arrived, and they listened to Apollos for a while, decided that his message was not quite up to par, and so they took some time to teach him a little bit more, especially some of the things that they had heard from the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul eventually had a third missionary journey, and when he went on that third journey, he stopped in Ephesus and spent three years there. He spent three years making sure that this church was firmly established in the truth. And they were doing great. Now you can read all about that in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and some verses in chapter 20. Later on, a man named Timothy, whom Paul called his son in the Lord, became the pastor of that church. We don't know how long he was there. Uh, some things the Bible doesn't record. But following Timothy, the Apostle John became the pastor of that church in Ephesus. And he had a great ministry in Ephesus. But eventually, uh, he got in trouble with some of the authorities, in, like his message, and he was sent into exile to Patmos, which was a small island off the coast and he wrote the book of Revelation while he was there. And, of course, the book of Revelation has these letters to the seven churches. And if you look at a map of Asia, you find that Ephesus is like here, and then the other ones, Ephesus, Pergamon, I think it's Smyrna somewhere in there, and the other four, it just kind of goes in a horseshoe. It's an interesting thing. So the, the mailman would travel from one city to the other, just like that. Now, we're also told that in Ephesus, eventually they had a church called the Church of Mary. It's believed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, actually lived in Ephesus, where when the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John, was the pastor of that church. In addition to that, we know from church history that there were several church councils that were held in Ephesus, and that went into the third century. So this church, maybe not the same building, but this church had at least a 300-year ministry in that part of Asia. And so God greatly used them in the spread of Christianity. Well, let's take a look at what the Bible says about this church. One of the things that you did notice as we read the, the verses, 
is that they had several things they were doing right, and they had one thing that he felt needed to be improved. They had lost or abandoned their first love. And we'll talk about that. But I want to talk, first of all, about the good things they were doing, which is always interesting because some churches are always doing good things, orthodox, uh, whatever, uh, but often there is some weakness that holds it back and keeps it from being as fruitful as it possibly could. The Bible tells us there in verse 2 that three of the things that were going well is that they had hard workers, they had discipline, and they had discernment. Those are three of the strong points. And I guess I could reread that those verses where it says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And he goes on in verse 3 to say a few more things. So, there were lots of workers. And the workers were known for their perseverance and endurance. You know, sometimes you just have to keep at it, right? Can't quit. They didn't quit. When the going got difficult, or when they ended up suffering for their faith, uh, they kept on enduring, they kept on persevering, they kept on doing the work of the ministry. You know, we can't give any other specifics. And I'm not one to do a lot of speculation. Uh, you could read between the lines and come up with a few things, I suppose, but I would rather not do that. What I would like to do is uh, compare, possibly, with this church. This, this church has had some of these virtues connected with it. For example, when I was here, we had quite a few workers, and we kept gaining more and more. And we put a lot of emphasis on outreach to children um, because children bring in parents. Did you know that? They do. So we had Sunday school and Awana clubs, and we had some great VBS programs. One summer, with only about 30, 35 kids, we took in over $400 in penny offerings for the mission, missionaries. And uh, we thought that was pretty good. Further, furthermore, my wife actually did a good news club down at the elementary school here in town for a couple years. Now, there's lots of ways that you can get involved in doing ministry in the community. You just have to be creative in how you go about it. Uh, we, we once attended a church in North Carolina where twice a year, about 10% of the members of the church, especially men, would go out and serve the community, not necessarily church members, but just people in the community who needed a helping hand. And my wife volunteered to go to a house and ended up cleaning the woman's oven. Now, that's hard work. 
at least before they had those kinds of stoves that cleaned themselves. But she went and did this, and it was nice. But the lady that lived there was a very heavy smoker. And my wife is not accustomed to smoke, so it was quite an experience. Uh, but she endured, <laughs> and she patiently suffered, and she got that thing cleaned, and the lady was really, really happy. So that's kind of what we mean by hard work, enduring, having perseverance, uh, even when things are not as nice as you would like them to be, okay? Now, I think the thing for us to remember is that when we're dealing with situations of that kind, uh, people are more likely to listen to your witness when you have shown love for, what, for who they are, which, of course, that opens up doors for witness, opportunities to share with, about Jesus, and that's what it's all about anyway. And while I was here, we also gave some careful attention to the content of our worship service. I wanted to have as much congregational participation as possible. Uh, I did not want to have some kind of a concert-style uh, worship. And that's happening in a lot of churches. I say that not to be critical, but to compare that I think I think a church at worship should be a church that's participating in the worship. And that's how I feel about that. The music was Christ-centered, singable, thoroughly biblical. And of course, I did some expository preaching and teaching. And you know, preaching has sadly fallen out of favor in evangelical churches. There seems to be some kind of a rebellion among people for preaching. They don't want someone preaching to them. Well, the problem with that is the Bible says very clearly that pastors should preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.12. So if your pastor gets to preaching, don't criticize him. Say amen. Amen. <laughs> Let him get his point across, all right? And then, of course, I've talked already about the construction and maintenance. That was hard work. Circumstances required us to do some much-needed construction and remodeling. And sadly, the new roof over the offices and children's classrooms failed. And so we had some leakage out there. But we got, that got rebuilt. So there's still a lot that needs to be done. If you walk around this place and you see things that are in disrepair, just remember that these kind of things take money and they take people who are willing to spend a little time and energy to try to make it better. Is that important? Well, I think it is. I think that if you're going to attract visitors to a church, that they want to come to a place that has decent facilities. They don't expect perfection, but they want to see that you, that you care, that you care about things, and that you want to present yourself in the best way that you are able to do so.
Now, remember that every church needs workers, all kinds of workers, ushers, greeters, nursery moms, kitchen laborers, janitors, data processors, much more. And, of course, every church needs deacons and elders, primarily to serve the congregation. And I emphasize service. That's what these men are for, not just to be the bosses, but to serve you. They are important, though, for helping to maintain discipline and doctrinal purity. You know, one of the things that brought a lot of pleasure and a smile to my face was during the summertime when we were able to meet in the sanctuary out there. Uh, we opened the doors in the front of the church, but on the steps we had lots and lots of pigeon doo-doo. Uh, sometimes it wasn't very nice, but if people were going to come in there, what were we going to do about it? Well, the Lord sent us Helen Hall. And Helen Hall got here early, and she went out there, and she swept the pigeon dew off those steps so that when people came in, they didn't have to walk in it. Nobody asked her to do that. She looked around and says, there's a need that needs to be filled, and she went and did it. And that's the kind of thing that God blesses in a congregation. Now, a question I have to ask, however, is what can possibly motivate us to do hard work in a church? I mean, we have enough stuff we have to do at home, right? How, what motivates us to do hard work at a church? Well, the only answer that I know of is that the love of Christ constrains us. The love of God, loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself, that's what motivates us to, to work hard. God has poured out his love on us through his Holy Spirit, and he gives us then the love to do the work of the ministry. He's also sent that Holy Spirit to empower indwell, enlighten, and to sanctify us. By God's Holy Spirit, we can continue to overcome our tendency to take the easy way out. Now, that's not a criticism. I'm trying to encourage you not to take the easy way out, get involved, and get engaged in hard work. And the Lord will bless it. Now, along with the hard work, we also need the perseverance that John speaks of in verse 2. You see, if hard work is taxing, then continuing to work hard day after day, week in and week out, year after year, is even more taxing. Hard work is taxing. But he says, and he said in verse 3 that the church in Ephesus had endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now, I don't want you to miss what I just read. In that verse, it says, You have endured for my name's sake. 
Folks, it makes a huge difference as to who you're working for and why you're working. Why are we working? Why are we working hard in a church? It's for His name's sake. It's for His name's sake. It's for the sake of the name of Jesus. It's for the sake of the reputation of Jesus. As a church in this community, your hard work becomes a testimony to the uh, name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in another passage, wrote and said that whatever we do, we should do it heartily as to the Lord. Now, I'm reminded of something that happened in Ephesus at the time of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as I mentioned, was there for three years and did a lot of preaching. Uh, this is the story of what happened in Ephesus when Paul was there. He says, about that time, I, and I'm reading from Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 23, he says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That was a code word for Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of Ephesus! And then you go down a few verses, Verse 34, and we see that this mini-riot turned into a two-hour vocal concert of all of these people standing there in the town square crying out, Great is Diana or Artemis of Ephesus. Two hours! Two hours they stood there in the town square and said over and over and over and over again, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. I think they cared about the name of Artemis to do something like that. But I ask you, how can we as a church communicate to the people of Interlaken that Jesus Christ is great? Well, I suppose one way would be for all of us to go out on the front yard near the sidewalk and start chanting, Great is Jesus Christ 
Great is the Lord Jesus Christ. We could sing that, maybe a song along those lines. Instead of just shouting all the time, we could sing, He is Lord. Or praise the name of Jesus, or hail the name, power of Jesus' name. Uh, one that we used to sing years ago was, Why do I sing about Jesus? Why is he precious to me? He is my Lord and my Savior. In dying, he set me free. That's why I sing about Jesus. So we, we could go out there and do something like that, and everybody that passed by, we got the whole message, you see, quickly. Great is the name of Jesus. And away it goes the car. But everybody hears the message. Well, you could do that. Another thing that you could do is at Christmas time, you could organize some caroling and go up and down the streets of Interlaken and sing a Christmas carol. And then after you've sung one Christmas carol, you could sing a chorus like, He is Lord. By the time you sang six or ten Christmas choruses, you would also have sung ten times, He is Lord. You know how that song goes. Now, if you're not quite ready for such public proclamations, and some of you probably be a little shy, <laughs> you know, the least you could do is to make certain that the person, work, and name of Jesus is proclaimed in your worship service. That might sound like a... Yeah, so what's different? I'll tell you one thing. I've, I've been around since uh, I left here 12 years ago. And I've been in a lot of services where the name of Jesus is not even mentioned in the music. I'm serious. Maybe once or twice. But they don't sing about Jesus. They don't proclaim that Jesus is Lord. You say, well, it gets old, doesn't it? No. No, it never gets old. It thrills our hearts to sing about Jesus. And we need to do it. It's good for your own soul as well. At any rate, we should make sure in our worship services that the person, work, and name of Jesus is proclaimed in our music, and in our preaching. Make sure that every visitor who ever walks into this assembly goes out having heard that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's really important. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Y'all know that song at all? How's it go? He is Lord, He is Lord. He has risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do it again and raise your arm. 
He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you. Some people think I'm crazy, but I'm not. All right, so there was hard work. And then I mentioned that there was discipline. Because we're told that the church of Ephesus could not tolerate evil men. I don't know if I've gone past my time yet. No, nope. No, no, okay. Because I still have 20 pages of notes. No, no. All right. Good, because the chick is not here yet, so keep going. Okay. But Dick's going to keep checking. <laughs> All right. Now, it's not exactly clear what these, they, they couldn't tolerate these evil men. It's not quite clear what these men were doing, what evil practices they were engaged in. One possibility it relates to that group of people that Frank called Nickelodeons. What were they, Frank? You mean Nicolaitans? Nicolaitans. Oh, he got the music part right. I tried. It's hard. You tried. See, and he he endured, and he's now he's suffering. All right. Maybe it was this group, and and one of the possibilities is that this group is mentioned in verse six. In verse six, it talks about the the works of the Nicolaitans, which he says, you hate it, and I hate it, and God, Jesus said, I hate it too. What does that word mean? What's it come from? Well, the etymology suggests that it means something like conquering people or victory over people. Uh, the N-I-C-O, Nico, is the Greek word for victor or victory. And then the laetan is the Greek word for people, okay? So some have tried to connect that, that there were people who were kind of lording it over uh, other folks. And he found that kind of an evil thing to do. Some have also linked the name to Balaam. And you remember Balaam, the guy that had the donkey that talked? Remember that story in the Old Testament? Some have linked the name to Balaam, which means Lord of the people. And indeed, the two words, Balaam and Nicolaitans, are actually linked in the next letter, the letter to Pergamum. Okay? This Balaam was an evil guy in that he encouraged the Israelites to eat food offered to idols and then for the Moabites to engage in immoral sexual behavior with Israel. And so the Bible says here that the people in Ephesus did not tolerate those who were giving instruction along those lines. And you and I have to be careful too because uh, this, this whole thing of advocating for immoral sexual acts is alive and well uh, in our communities and in our media and everything else. And it, sometimes it creeps into the churches. 
there are some churches that have bought into what is being taught about sexual behavior. One of the presidential candidates for uh, uh, that's um, a mayor of a city in Indiana as an example, he claims that Christian theology does not condemn same-sex marriage. Now, I, I agree that I, I don't know of a verse that says, says the opposite of that, but the Bible does condemn homosexual behavior, and same-sex marriage cannot go uh, to the Bibles for support. And then other people are buying into the idea that personal preference of gender identity takes precedent over biological birth indicators of gender. And I can tell you, it's making a mess of our public schools. I, um, I know firsthand, I believe it or not, as old as I am, I still do some substitute school teaching. And I love it because I love being around the, the teenagers. But it's in the schools here in New York State. It's almost like it's a free, free, free ride for that kind of thing. All right, so this trend is, the, the trend is whatever is deviant in our culture soon gains a foothold in our churches. And we have to be very careful that we don't allow that to happen. Yeah, I can't remember whether, what you have in your doctrinal statement, but if you haven't added a statement to your doctrinal position that marriage is between one man and one woman, you ought to do that as soon as possible. Uh, it might save you some problems down the line. All right, the third area was discernment. The church at Ephesus also had some discernment. Uh, the Bible says that they put to the test those who called themselves apostles, but in fact were not. They found that claim to be false. So it's implied that after exposing the fraud, they disciplined the perpetrator of the fraud. Believe it or not, there are folks that will try to find their way in and teach false doctrine. Paul told this church in Ephesus at one point, he says, you be careful because the day is coming when there will be uh, wolf, wolves in sheep's clothing that will come intruding into your church and trying to turn it upside down. He told them that in, in Acts chapter 20. So make sure that you do your leadership training, your teacher training, I remember when years and years ago when I was young, uh, I was a Sunday school superintendent in a large church. We had about 400 people in Sunday school. And one day, a man came in, into the church and realized that I had a little bit of authority, not much, but something. And so he says, I'd, I'd, he hadn't been there more than two or three weeks. He says, you know, I'd like to teach a Sunday school class. Well, there was a little bit of a red flag that went up. I didn't know exactly what to tell him. So I just says, well, I'll talk to the pastor about it. And I figured he'd know. And so I went and talked to the pastor about it, and the pastor was totally against it. He, he said that this man 
had been going from church to church to church to church, trying to worm his way into the church to teach his strange doctrines. I said, okay, well, that settles that. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're talking about as far as testing, testing folks. Make sure that they are teaching the truth if they're going to be your teacher. Why? Even Frank yesterday, he says to me, do I need to check your notes? <laughs> he was joking. He was joking. He wasn't serious, I don't think. Uh, he wasn't serious. See that? He trusts me. But, yeah, see that? But he tested. He's testing. And so then I told him a story, which I'm not going to tell here. It's, it, uh, I've, been, I've been tested, too. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. All right. Because once in a while I do a little pulpit supply, and, and there's churches that don't know who I am, but they need somebody to preach, and so they call me, and I go preach, and sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're not. Um, by the way, if you're looking for excellent training materials, the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. has some good stuff, and they allow you to, to modify it and use it in your churches. Now we get to the weakness. They had one weakness. He said in verse 4, you have abandoned your first love. You've abandoned your first love. That sounds serious, doesn't it? Unfortunately, John did not get any more specific than that statement. What's he talking about? Is he talking about their love for God, their love for Christ, their love for brothers and sisters in Christ? What is he talking about? Commentators have championed one or the other of those three ideas, or else they've just thrown up their hands and said it's probably a reference to all of them to God, to Christ, to one another, and they may be right. But my personal conclusion after studying this is that we cannot eliminate the idea that he's talking about you have abandoned your love for the brethren, that you've abandoned your love for one another. You know how it is when you first get saved you, you just have an open heart for other believers. And you want to get to know them and you want to talk with them about Jesus. And, uh, but sometimes the heart grows cold. For whom? For God? Oh, no, we wouldn't deny God. For Christ? Oh, no, we wouldn't do that. But, you know, maybe some of the people I'm just going to have to stay away from. And that happens in every church. Robert Mounts, who wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, said that every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. The desire for sound teaching and the resulting action to exclude all impostors had created a climate of suspicion in which brotherly love could no longer exist. Think about this. Think about this. Hard work, discipline, discernment, sometimes... It turns believers into bitter, harsh, 
suspicious people. Like if you're working hard and somebody else is just sitting in the pew, what do you think? You think, yeah, I'd, I'd like to twist his arm a little bit behind his back. I'd like to get him going. I'd like to see if, you know, and you get a little grumbly, start murmuring. That happens a lot, not only in churches, but other places. Or maybe the church has been rooting out sin, which has crept into the congregation. You know, you can become judgmental, and you can become pretty harsh, because that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. As a, as a pastor of 28 years, uh, I've, I've had my opportunities to talk to people about areas in their life that needed some work. And about half the time, they ended up getting mad at me. I wasn't trying to be judgmental. I was trying to be loving. But it's just the way it is. Folks don't like to be rebuked. They don't like to be rebuked at all. And what happens then, when we get that kind of a reaction, then something happens in our hearts. We become a little bit cynical towards some of these things. Or you think about this thing of testing everybody's orthodoxy. It's easy to start getting suspicious, and you don't warm up to folks. So you get suspicious, you get bitter, you get harsh, you get judgmental, and you start drawing back from people. This mount that I mentioned a moment ago said good works and pure doctrine are not adequate substitutes for that rich relationship of mutual love shared by persons who have just experienced the redemptive love of God. William Barclay, another commentator, says, the eagerness to root out all mistaken men had ended in a sour and rigid orthodoxy. But I want you to think about some verses of Scripture. Jesus taught his disciples in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. It's important, isn't it, that people know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's important. And if you don't have love for one another, people won't be able to tell that you love Jesus too. 1 John, or I should say Ephesians 1, 15 and 16 the Apostle Paul commended the church for their love for all the saints. He said, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Your love toward all the saints. That was important. The Apostle Paul taught that when he was with the Ephesian church. And then in 1 John 4, 11, and 12, John talks about a deeper love of God nourished by a deeper love for the beloved brethren. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If, we're to, if we love one another, 
God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. There's a real connection between your love for the brethren and your love for God, your love for Christ in his person and work. So in a way, all these three ideas that I threw out work together. Love for one another, love for God, love for Christ. The Ephesian church had abandoned some of that love. They had drawn back. Sometimes you can have a real dislike for other believers. One of the churches that I served, I detected, not this church, but another one, detected some tension within a group of people. And I felt like talking to someone about it, so I spoke to the choir director, and she responded in almost a casual, flippant way. She says, oh, they just don't like each other. Uh, That told me volumes. That told me a thick book. They don't like each other. Folks, as believers, you're not allowed to not like someone. You've got to love them. I, now, that doesn't mean you have to like or love every blooming thing they do. Sometimes they do things that aren't very lovable or likable. But remember that when you love somebody, what you're concerned about is what's best. What's the best thing that, that we can do for these folks? And I think the best thing you can do is point them to Jesus. Point them to the Lord Jesus. Well, he had actually said in verse 5 that these churches, this church needed to repent or they would lose their lampstand, their candlestick, some of you have. That verse 5 said very clearly, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now he's talking to the whole church. Sometimes what a few people do affects everybody. affects the whole church. So we have to constantly be praying about this. Do I have a dislike for one member? Repent and begin to love one another. Did you know that Jesus himself told people 21 times to love one another? He really did. We close with verse 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word conquers is sometimes overcome. God wants us to be overcomers. Listen, folks, we're going to, you, you're going to face a lot of things that come up that mitigate against your fervor for God, your fervor for Christ. God wants us to overcome, overcome 
those things that turn us into negative people. We don't want to be negative people. We want people to be loved. And I would just encourage you today, although I heard a lot already before I even got up here, that it's important that we love one another. The Bible is so full of that statement, love one another, love one another. I may have mentioned a few years ago, God wants you to be a one another church. God wants you to be a church that cares about one another in multiple ways. However you can relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ, try to do that. Really, God will bless you so much, bless you so richly. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, I thank you today for your word. We can learn so much from this letter that John wrote to the people in Ephesus. Most of all, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who truly love one another because I know when we love one another truly, we will also love God and will love the Lord Jesus Christ, whose redemptive work, the person and work of Jesus Christ, is what's made this fellowship possible because it's in Christ that we have the bond of unity, the bond of the Spirit. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And may each one of us go from this place today knowing and being assured in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is great. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Thank you very much, Pastor Dale. It's wonderful. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> Thank you. We all want to continue our celebration today with uh, guys here for dinner. So I know there's some barbecue chicken uh, that is here, and we have you know, some of us that brought us to